Hello, I'm Brian Hubbard. Hi, and I'm Lynn McTaggart. And we are What Doctors Don't Tell You. And welcome to our latest podcast or vlog, if you're watching it on YouTube. And uh, What Doctors Don't Tell You, we've been doing this since 1989 in some form or another, and more recently as a magazine. Here's a recent issue I'm holding up for the vlog viewers. And um, it's a long time to be researching medicine. So we have some interesting things to say about the news that's going the rounds at the moment. So without further ado, let's have a look at some recent health news. And the first item is fake news. <laughs> that's the word of the day, isn't it? Fake news. And the idea behind it, why it's got so much traction, is that um, it's almost like an implicit understanding that those in power and authority have stuff they don't want us to know about. And uh, we know that's a fact. And so I think that's why the idea's got traction. And of course, medicine has more than its fair share of fake news, which is one of the reasons why we're around and we tell you what doctors don't tell you. Well, and I think what's so outrageous about fake news is it's been lobbed, that term has been lobbed at, you know, just newspapers. You know, we're trying to actually do investigative reporting. But... Underneath all of that, there is a lot of dirty stuff going on in medicine, as Brian says, and it's all about the regulatory agencies basically putting out the news they want us to hear. Mm -hmm. And that's the real shocking element because these are the people, the very people like the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, who are supposed to safeguard the public health. Well, yeah, I mean, the news is really to do with another agency, the, the FDA, the, the drug regulator in the States, where it's been discovered that they've been busy doing deals with journalists and saying, well, look, I'll tell you what, we'll give you the news early, so you scoop everybody else, but we'll control the news agenda. We'll tell you who it is you can speak to about this story and who you can't. And you must stick to that. So they are controlling the news agenda. You know, the phrase I've not actually come across before, um, but they, um, they, do a, they call it a close hold embargo. And a close hold, obviously, because they're holding the journalists extremely close <laughs> and determining how the news is reported. And, uh, you know, and this is no wonder that you find, you know, all the newspapers falling into line and and not just the newspapers. It's true for the major uh, TV outlets, the, the network, the cable channels and all the rest of it. Well, and I think what we're always shocked about, aren't we, Brian, is mm. that when we find a big exclusive about something, there's some something that gets unearthed, some investigative bit of information none of the majors carry the story. And now we know why. They're being mm. fed a line by the FDA. Mm. What makes me so sad about this, you know, close hold embargo idea is that I can remember back 30-something years ago as a young journalist when the heroes were the Food and Drug Administration. They mm. were rooting out the, pe the bad guys. They were rooting out um, dirty evidence and manipulated evidence by the pharmaceutical companies. Now they are the pharmaceutical companies, essentially. Most of the people who are populating the FDA are ex-pharmaceutical employees. And so small wonder that we've got a situation where the news that you're hearing on medicine in the, in, in the main 
if it's from the major papers, is controlled. And it's not just the agencies that are involved. The other piece of fake news we uh, discovered this week is, uh, is the older story about Coca-Cola. Now, this goes back a little bit, but what's interesting and what's new about it is that uh, a Freedom of Information request has uncovered really all the details of how Coca-Cola was controlling the, the news uh, agenda. And this is really going back a couple of years when, really for the first time, sugar was being fingered as the true culprit for uh, diabetes, heart disease, and, of course, obesity. And, of course, that directly impacts on Coca-Cola and its products. And so they decided to do something about it by creating, again, their own news agenda. And they set up a, a thing called the Global Energy Balance Network, and they poured millions of dollars at this, in which they recruited leading ap academics. They also recruited uh, the University of Colorado School of Medicine. And in the UK, they recruited uh, Sense About Science, which is run by Simon Singh. And um, the idea was that these great and good scientists and free-thinking people would um, spread the Coca-Cola agenda that, in fact, obesity and all these things had nothing at all to do with sugar, but had everything to do with lack of exercise in, in uh, what uh, Coca-Cola framed as energy balance or energy misbalance, I suppose. And so they all dutifully fell into line, took their money and started to spread the word. And, you know, this is particularly ironic for us at What Doctors Don't Tell You, because when we first turned into a magazine in 2012 from a newsletter, which we'd been for for 20 something years, we were attacked by numerous organizations, one of which was Sense About Science, really trying to debunk us, get us banned, all sorts of things like that, and try to claim that we were the fake news. And this is really ironic when you see that some of what they are, some of their funding is coming essentially from lobbying groups. So you want to, you know, really ask the question then how many other organizations are essentially just patsies of the lobbying uh, organizations and big business, big pharmaceutical companies and big food like this. Mm. Well, of course, the, the denouement was that the um, network that was created, the GEBN, as it was called, which was the Global Energy Balance Network, was eventually closed down a couple of years back now. And uh, to their credit, the University of Colorado did hand, hand back the million dollars that they had been handled, although we don't know if Mr. Singh handed back his $25,000. Um, perhaps he at, least about, at least sense about science in any case. Yeah, so we, we don't know. But there you are. There, they are. That's fake news for you guys. It's stuff you've got to be careful about what you're reading because there's likely to be an agenda there. And it's also just worth adding that something else we did point out, you know, again, many times, that um, around about 70% of medical research that gets published in the most prestigious journals is in fact fakery. It's been spun. And so, goodness me, thank goodness for what doctors don't tell you. And, you know, also these public health authorities like the Centers for Disease Control, we know have sat on really important and, you know, refused to publish and even doctored really important data about vaccines. Um, uh, particularly the MMR. 
So when you see things like that, as you say, um, we were once called a voice in the silence, and it's becoming more silent out there. Mm. Okay, and now to a quick drug alert. There's been quite a few drug alerts, to be fair, about the contraceptive pill, but this one is particularly important for mm. a small subset of women, but nonetheless, it's um, quite an important uh, point to make. Women who are suffering from uh, aura migraines really should talk to their doctors about whether they should continue the contraceptive pill. Because a new study has discovered that if they do suffer from um, aura migraines, their risk of suffering a stroke doubles. So that's quite uh, serious. And of course, if the woman is also a smoker, the risk goes up tenfold. So that's so if you're a woman with migraines, with, with aura, and you smoke, and you're on a, the contraceptive pill, you know, you really do need to speak to your doctor immediately because um, you are at great risk. Um, but uh, non-smokers who don't suffer from migraines also at some risk with the pill. Um, they still have a, a risk of ischemic stroke of 80%. So it's still quite, quite concerning. And, and also the pill raises the risk for hypertension or high blood pressure. This just adds to a laundry list of issues with the pill, Brian. Mm. I mean, this is what, what really angers me about medicine is that there has been this total denial by the medical authorities to really even investigate the pill properly. I mean, it's just been accepted and used on millions and millions of people. Um, and, in, and as has the hormone replacement pill, which is essentially the pill with, you know, a little bit of different ingredients, but it's essentially trying to do the same thing, give women extra hormones. And both have been demonstrated over and over again to raise breast cancer risks. These, uh, the drug companies continue to try to minimize, doctors continue to try to minimize, and the whole idea is contraceptive, contraception at all costs, quick and easy contraception at all costs. The point is there's plenty of other ways to prevent yourself from getting pregnant, and they don't involve all of these kinds of risks. So really think carefully before you just take a pill that's going to alter your whole hormonal uh, system. And it's worth adding that um, in the States alone, 55,000 more women suffer from a stroke every year than men mm. and you know maybe that we, we can actually now draw a conclusion as to exactly why that's happening well you know we really have to look at artificial hormones um as a big culprit because we've known for a long time about stroke but now we're isolating who's mm. most at risk mm. so it as i say there's multiple risks with the pill you can investigate all of the pages in our website about it, um, and you'll find out that there are also all kinds of better alternatives. Mm. Okay. I want to hold your hand. I want to hold your hand. One of the biggest concerns at the moment is the opioid epidemic, which is killing many, many thousands of people and making many, many more thousands, if not millions, addicts. Because the opioid is a painkiller, which, of course, uh, affects the pleasure area of the brain, causing addiction. But uh, a new study has come out, has found a much safer way 
where we can reduce pain, and that's just by holding each other's hands, and it actually does work. It's just the idea that we synchronise with the other person, we empathise with the person, we make human contact with another person, and their pain levels actually do drop. So isn't that a phenomenal thing? They did a, a study of this. Uh, it's a small group, admittedly, but nonetheless, it's still uh, significant. It's called interpersonal synchronization, where we do sort of reach out to another person. And um, it's not just the pain really goes down, but pain goes down, but also breathing, heart rate and brain waves fall into sync with the other person. And um, they even check this through EEG machines to see this phenomenon actually happening in the brains of the participants. And it, it were, even if they didn't touch, just being in each other's company mm. seemed to have some positive effect on, on the other person. So isn't it quite remarkable that something as simple as this can actually reduce pain almost as effectively as an opioid or indeed any other pain-relieving drug. This isn't really surprising to me. Based on the other work that I've done for the field and my other books, um, there was a really great study done by the Institute of Noetic Sciences called the Love Study. And they wanted to see what would happen with couples where one of the partners had cancer. Um, if the other, the well partner, just sent them healing thoughts, just thought about them in a positive healing way. So they put them in two rooms, they hooked them up to all kinds of physiological equipment, including EEGs to measure brain waves, and they then had a, a camera in the ill partner's area, and then the well partner had a monitor, and every so often his partner's image would flash up, and that was his cue, or her cue, to send healing intention, healing thoughts to the other. So afterward, the scientists looked at all of their physiological readouts and they found just at the moment of healing thoughts, when those thoughts were sent, their brain waves started to synchronize, their skin conductance, the rate that their blood comes to the extremities synchronized, their breathing, their heart rate, um, brain waves, essentially everything was synchronizing. It was like two bodies become one. So this really indicates that we, there's a lot we don't really understand about just the power of being together, of thinking about someone else in a positive and loving way. That can have powerful effects on somebody's body. Just as a single arg argument they've shown in studies can delay somebody's wound healing by an entire day. So all of this interpersonal stuff has a lot to do with healing as well as love. And uh, just to add, because I know you won't do it because you're far too modest, but Lynn does have a secret life, and that's um, what she calls the Power of Eight, where she has been doing healing with a number of groups, and it's been tracked by a number of universities. There have been 30-plus studies into it as well. And, um, you know, look it up. It's not on what doctors don't tell you, but it is on Lynn's own website. So take a look where you'll find more about holding hands and doing all sorts of things really does help people and and beyond pain relief i mean we've seen most remarkable results so you know check it out well worth it you know it's quite remarkable that cancer is the second major cause of death in the west and yet almost for any cancer 
there really isn't an accurate, reliable screening test that correctly identifies a true cancer, and indeed, more importantly, one that's aggressive and is life-threatening. And there's been a new study about the PSA, which is the prostate-specific antigen test, which is obviously for, for men to test for prostate cancer, and it's suggested that anyone over the age of 50 should have it. Um, and it's a simple blood test, but the problem is it doesn't work. And um, the um, University of Bristol carried out um, a, a very thorough investigation of this test and said that, well, whether the, the men had a PSA or they didn't, the chance of the person being alive 10 years later was exactly the same. <laughs> uh, the problem was that the PSA just isn't picking up uh, the aggressive cancers, the ones that are life-threatening, and more to the point, it's also picking up cancers that actually aren't there, the, what they call the false positive. Of course, that triggers a whole series of problems for people where they're told they have cancer and maybe quite aggressive treatment may be started when actually they never had the cancer in the first place. It was a big trial. It involved nearly 190,000 men. So, um, you know, it's quite significant. And, um, of course, the real thing is that you know, in, in the UK and possibly in this America as well, that, you know, we're on the verge of choosing the PSA as the routine uh, test for prostate cancer. And now the, the university researchers saying, hold your horses. It doesn't work. It's not good enough for that purpose. You can't use it for routine screening. And, um, you know, we're back to the drawing board again. Hmm. This doesn't surprise me again, because when we look at, as you say, the other screening tests, you know, m mammography has been, you know, demonstrated time and time again to do exactly the same as the PSA tests. It picks up the benign masses and ignores some of the big aggressive cancers. So that unleashes all of modern medicine and all of its, you know, uh, Herculean responses to cancer, you know, with the chemotherapy, radiotherapy, um, and surgery, when the person may not even have cancer. So, you know, our big message here really is to look at tests with a jaundiced eye. Look at some of the newer tests coming up for cancer. Thermography is brilliant for um, for picking up very, very early cancers, certainly with breast cancer. But, we, you know, we had a personal experience with this with our first daughter. Um, I was over 35 when we had her, so um, the doctor said, well, you should have a blood test, a routine blood test. It'll see if she's got Down syndrome. And the test came back, borderline Down syndrome. And after I started, stopped crying, I thought, this test isn't really that accurate. I looked up some of this stuff, we looked it up together, and what we did was we decided to ignore it. Because if we had gone for the next test, amniocentesis, there was a, a chance, a pretty good chance, we, you know, a decent chance, we could have miscarried a perfectly healthy baby. And when our daughter came out, Caitlin was perfectly healthy. The test was wrong. Imagine if I had listened to it. So it's not about not taking any kind of tests, but it's just knowing whether those tests really carry uh, a really high degree of accuracy. And if they don't, looking for a second opinion or trying another test.
Okay, so what causes cancer? Well, we all know there are a certain number of things that definitely do, and smoking is definitely top of that league. But so too are things like uh, processed foods. And I think something that is really coming to the fore more and more is the stuff in our environment. Um, the pollutants in our environments, mm -hmm. the chemicals, you know, are proving to be a major cause of cancer. And I think one that's still not being... Uh, especially recognised at the moment. And interestingly, Otto Warburg, who was the one who came up with the whole idea of sugar being a, a fuel of cancer cells, which, of course, he was absolutely right, towards the end of his life also uh, decided that, felt that, um, you know, these, these environmental pollutants were, for him, some of the biggest causes of, of cancer. And um, researchers have started to take a look, not just at the pollutants in the air from car fumes and industrial processes, but also the stuff we use in our homes. And um, there's a real concern there too. They, they say that people who work with um, household chemicals that we use just for cleaning our homes, if you, um, is, is like being exposed to smoking 20 cigarettes a day. And that's particularly true for, for obviously causing lung damage and lung cancers um, and particularly they're worried about people who work with these chemicals every day be, be cleaning people whatever it might be but you know it's a concern I think for all of us well I think you know you really have to do an inventory of your home this is a really important um, idea and it's becoming increasingly more important because they've found when they've done some studies and they did one in I think it was in the middle of New Jersey which has a high rate of pollution. And they found that indoor air pollution was actually worse than outdoor air pollution. And that has a lot to do with cleaning products. Of course, all the products we use in our house, but also our carpets, which have chemicals on them, our sofas, they have fire retardants on them. The things we use to wash our dishes, our dishwashers, our laundry detergent, you name it. There are chemicals there, and some of them are really, really highly dangerous. There's a real simple solution here, which is just go natural. There's all kinds of echo products out there that don't have these chemicals in them. And they're a really good. They clean really well these days, and they're a fantastic way to minimize the kind of indoor pollution that you're subject to. Mm. Well, it's, yeah, on that point, the researchers themselves who made this discovery said, you know, there's actually nothing wrong with water. Water actually is a great cleansing agent, and um, mm -hmm. you don't necessarily need a lot of chemicals to clean, you know, the basic surface stuff that we, we have in our mm -hmm. homes every day uh, mm -hmm. is good enough. A microfiber and an a little bit of elbow grease, mm. that's what you need. Yep, okay. Well, we're all missing Lady Gaga. You know, not that I had bought the tickets, to be honest with you. But I know a lot of people did. And they were very excited about her latest world tour. And the poor girl just can't do it. I mean, she's in such pain from fibromyalgia, which is a dreadful business. And she can't perform. I know she tried one or two concerts and then had to give up. And, um, you know, as usual, medicine doesn't seem to have too many answers. But um, there is an answer. And uh, researchers have been looking into it and found that Tai Chi, surprisingly, for something like this, actually helps dramatically. And those who aren't familiar 
with Tai Chi. It's this really slow-mo movement. You obviously see older people in parks doing it. And um, you think, well, why could that help? Well, it, I don't think they actually know, but it does. In fact, it works better than all the standard treatments that are currently available. So that would include drugs as well as aerobic exercise, mm. which is really the go-to exercise at the moment for fibromyalgia. Mm. But mm. Tai Chi, which is, you know, when you imagine it's just so quiet, it's not aggressive, there's no mm -hmm. stress on the body, it hardly seems like anything is happening, mm -hmm. actually is having this dramatic effect on this very excruciating condition. Mm. You know, really Tai Chi, there's a lot of elements to it. And there's a lot of elements to fibromyalgia, um, which, interestingly enough, we've got a forthcoming issue of what doctors don't tell you. And a woman who we tell her story about how she beat fibromyalgia, largely with diet, tai chi, qigong, and a few other things. But essentially, just that gentle exercise and changing her diet, and she's completely rid of pain. She's chopping wood. She's doing all kinds of stuff. She lives in a yurt now. But anyway, with the love of her life, um, who worked with her on helping her overcome all of this pain, but I think there's two really interesting points about Tai Chi. First of all, we don't, we in the West don't really understand about the movement of energy and these so-called subtle energies and the kind of chi that is supposedly affected by these gentle movements. And secondly, if we even take a more Western approach, think of things like the Feldenkrais technique, which was invented by a guy called Moshe Feldenkrais who realized that the body's movements are really controlled by the brain. And the brain can learn new pathways to move through without pain. And it's all about very slow and subtle movements, looking at differential movement. You know, how to differentiate, if you're moving your shoulder, what else moves with it? And how to differentiate that movement and how to be really mindful of it. And that's all the same stuff that Tai Chi does. And so essentially, what we don't understand is how much we're also waking up the brain to say, no, we don't have to turn on this pain mechanism because we can move in a different way. Mm. And, and as with everything, you know, you have to do it for a while. And, and these researchers said that for Tai Chi, you know, ideally you need to be doing it a couple of times a week for at least six months before you start seeing any real change and improvement in fibromyalgia but of course you know and the thing is though for a lot of people with the with the pain the the idea of aerobic exercise is an impossibility anyway they can't go on a strenuous swim or a strenuous you know uh, sweaty cycle ride they, they they just don't have the, the 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 power to do that the energy to do that so this is an extraordinarily useful uh, approach which everyone can do and it's, you know, once again, it's a little bit like alternative medicine, which is gentler. You know, we have this nuclear war view of combating illness. We think that the harder, the better, the stronger the drug, the stronger the chemotherapy, the stronger the exercise, that's what's going to work. But increasingly, we're learning that no pain is all gain, that the gentler we go, whether it's with alternative medicine or with very gentle exercise, the more we re-educate the body and we, the more we heal. And on which very positive note, 
I think we've finished this week's podcast, so thank you very much for listening. Thank you. It's great to speak with you again.